0: I'm Kate Daniels. It's always my hope to bring insights and information to you so that we can all learn and make better choices, create a better world in the process. And I feel that Yasmin Abu-Taleb, a New York Times bestselling author and a journalist who is a national health policy reporter for The Washington Post, brings us a very thorough look at the past year and a half related to the pandemic. We meet her to talk about her new book, Nightmare scenario, Yasmin Abu Talib. Good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us. I so greatly appreciate uh, who you are, what you've done, and taking time with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to to talking about it.
0: Well, and it is quite some talking. Certainly, you know, the this book Nightmare Scenario inside the Trump administration's response to the pandemic that changed history is so dense, so packed full that we can only touch on a few things. But I trust in doing that, it will inspire uh, listeners to, to get their own copy of the book and really delve into this because there's always, for me, a, a challenge of balancing that I don't get too political. And I feel that in this book, while it it certainly is political, what's more important is understanding dynamics, understanding history, understanding what went on, so we can really get a, a more clear picture of, of all that has transpired in the last uh, almost two years now.
1: Absolutely. I think we're obviously not out of this pandemic, right? Not even close. And so it's still important to understand what's happening now, this administration's response. But I do think it is critical for us to understand what happened in the first year of the pandemic, because that really sets the stage for a lot of what we're still dealing with today. The fact that this is not over, that we still have a lot of spread, uh, that we're still struggling to build trust in science and vaccines and expertise and there's so much mistrust and polarization in the country and i think a lot of that was was set up last year it obviously existed before the trump administration was in place and there's not one single administration that's responsible for it but there were a number of decisions last year that certainly exacerbated the tensions that already existed and i think inflamed them in a lot of cases
0: and certainly, one of the big things, and we still find ourselves really in, in a great struggle with it, is how to how to be, how to act, uh, what we need to do in terms of protecting ourselves as well as our whole community, our, our whole country, well, the world. And I think here, by looking at what happened, it was like this ping-pong. Uh, ball going on uh, between discussions on what to do, what not to do, the the kind of commentary that went on. So there's been so much divisiveness. And yes, that's why to understand all that will help us moving forward to, I think, hopefully be more unified.
1: Absolutely. I think it's important to understand what divisions perhaps could have been Calmed last year? How could you have better united the country so that people felt like they were in this together as opposed to pitted against each other about what they should and should not do? I think one of the things Damien and I came away really appreciating and understanding is that in a crisis like this, the virus is so formidable. It's, it outsmarts everyone, it outsmarts the scientists, the White House, the, the various agencies the doctors, we, we are constantly behind the virus. It is it is much smarter and much savvier than we are and moves so much faster than we ever could. And so the focus needs to be entirely on fighting the virus and people need to be united in that, taking certain safety measures to protect themselves and each other, um, willing to make certain decisions for the greater good so that the whole country can come out of this. And that's not really the message that came through last year nor was it the approach that the administration ended up taking about halfway through the year. It was there for, for a short bit of time, but it ultimately didn't last. And I think it really um, meant that people ended up pitted against each other. And it meant you almost had to choose who you believed and what you thought was the appropriate response to this virus. There wasn't a single voice or a single message about how we safely get out of this.
0: And yes, we are still finding ourselves in that same place. But again, doing this kind of reading, research, understanding, I think, or at least I hope, we can begin to get more clarity. One of the things, of course, being vaccines, no vaccines. And I think it's so important to take a look back over, well, really early on in in March, where there was this big push by the White House to, you know, get get a vaccine, done immediately, certain drugs being um, confirmed when they really had not gone through testing. There was that kind of a murky type of situation going on.
1: Yeah, so I think it's important to start with this this idea where they seized on the miracle cures early on, because uh, then-President Trump wanted something that would convince people that there was a way out of the pandemic and that things would get better quickly, well before his reelection so that people would go back out go to restaurants. The economy would, would come back and not be struggling as much as it was at the time. Um, And the way he thought to do that was to convince people that it was okay to go out, that even if they got COVID, there were treatments that would, help them get better Um, and so he sees on hydroxychloroquine very early on um as as early as march just a, a few weeks into dealing with this saying it had these sort of miracle properties and it could cure covid and he saw this mad scramble not just among the public but even from the federal agencies to deliver on what the president wanted hydroxychloroquine was added to the national stockpile by the millions the fda granted an emergency use authorization even though hydroxychloroquine is already approved for other uses, it's approved for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, so doctors already can prescribe it for off-label uses if they want to. So that was a little bit unnecessary, especially because the data wasn't in yet. But that's how much this, this culture was defined by the president, that people really scrambled to try to do what he wanted to avoid his wrath. And I think that really set the stage for some of what we're seeing now, people seizing on ivermectin the the drug that's for livestock instead of wanting to take the vaccine um people turning to all sorts of misinformation about what can and cannot cure coronavirus as opposed to just taking the vaccine which has been proven over and over again to work um, and so i think that really laid the groundwork for people to kind of seize on whatever they wanted i heard one expert describe it as a choose your own pandemic path. Um, you could listen to the scientists And and say, okay, well, there really isn't a lot of evidence that this drug works yet. Maybe we should wait and see. Or you could listen to the president and say, no, the president says it works, so I'm going to take it.
0: Right. Having to make that kind of decision, which, oh, It is a challenge. I I guess it depends on where one stands as to who you really trust and what what their background is, what their uh, education is, to really guide you along that path.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's what you saw happen to the country and continue to see. There were the people who made Dr. Fauci into an almost sort of cult figure. There were these signs of, in Fauci, we trust, protect Fauci, because everyone knew he was being kind of attacked by the White House and the president. And then there were people who thought he was Satan, who thought he was the source of all evil, that he had somehow brought the virus and worked with the Chinese himself to bring it here. Um, all these conspiracy theories about his work and NIH's work with the Wuhan lab. And so, I mean, that's that, I think, really captures it in a lot of ways. There's one part of the country that sort of hangs on Fauci's every word and wants to protect him at all costs. And another significant portion of the country that thinks he's actively undermining the president and his reelection prospects and start threatening his life and his family's life.
0: Right. And what he really had going for him, of course, is that he had had the experience of going through what was really an ec- epidemic with the AIDS and HIV Uh Conditions in this country, what, some 30 years ago, and how all that was handled. And we, too many people died then, but there was steady progress.
1: Not not always in AIDS. And I think that not only Dr. Fauci, but Dr. Burks and Dr. Redfield to some degree um, really carried those lessons with them. And they often invoked them when they were speaking with a task force or with other doctors. Um, With HIV and AIDS, there was a period of time where there was a small group of doctors that were researching it, that were treating patients, that were taking it seriously. But for a long time, for several years, the federal government really was not taking it seriously, even as cases were continuing to mount. Uh, and the government really, for, for many years, did not do enough and kind of ignored the crisis for, you know, some obviously political reasons. It was the Reagan administration at the time. It was a disease that was afflicting mostly gay men. So for for years, the, the Reagan administration really didn't address the crisis head on. And activists flooded Dr. Fauci's office, who was at um, the at NIAID, the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, where he still is today, calling for more, demanding the government do more. Um, And and you saw that the, the doctors who really were in the thick of the AIDS, HIV AIDS crisis learned from that. Dr. Brooks had learned from that crisis that you have to look for asymptomatic cases as well. You can't just wait until there are symptoms because then you likely already have thousands, if not more, of cases you're not catching. So you saw this really influence a number of the doctors who were central to the response.
0: And the, these are then the insights that we get in this incredible book, Nightmare Scenario. This along with just so much, um, well, we, we could see even separate from the time of the pandemic, how, you know, there was just so much chaos and uh, backstabbing that went on. People were there uh as, as part of the in-group, if you want to call it that. And then they were gone. And, and it just perpetuated. And all that kind of um, behavior really came to just a lot of conflicting messages and, and bad messaging that came out. And we needed to be able to, I guess, filter through that. Yet, what a challenge during a pandemic.
1: this was such an important part of understanding the trump administration's response to this crisis and damien and i spent a lot of time focusing on this and we already knew about a lot of the rivalries and the backbiting and the chaos of the administration just through our day jobs of of covering the administration day in and day out and i think we brought this unique perspective to the book because we didn't just cover the white house damien covers the white house economic team he's the economics editor so he knew all the key players I covered the health team and health policy at the White House, and those were really the two teams uh, that were pitted against each other as opposed to working together. There was this constant tension between taking public health measures or opening the economy, and for whatever reason, they could never view those things as working in tandem or working together to support each other. It was always one versus the other, and that was really important because it led to a number of fiefdoms in the response that already existed in the administration. We know The first three years of this administration, well before the crisis hit, was really marred by dysfunction and chaos. The president had had five or six chiefs of staff. By the time the coronavirus came, he fired his acting chief of staff in the first weeks of the crisis and replaced him with another loyalist, Mark Meadows, as the acting chief of staff through the duration of his term. Um, And you had people who were constantly trying to undermine each other and outsmart each other as opposed to focusing on the virus because there was so much focus on making sure your enemies were not in the room, making sure your enemies were not undermining you, making sure that you had the the final word with the president, making sure that a policy you put forward wasn't then undone by someone else. And that just took up an inordinate amount of time and energy and resources, this constant sort of conniving and backbiting as opposed to. Thinking about what you
0: do for the crisis, and the word that jumps to mind is dysfunction. We certainly have become familiar with it. Oh, you know, over the last maybe couple of decades, and in terms of just relationships in general. But to see that in our leadership, you know, it, and especially uh, really pronounced during a time of crisis. It, again, I guess we can see why everything has been in in such upheaval.
1: And a number of the decisions. I think the clearest example is masks. Damien and I devoted an entire chapter to masks because it's such an important issue that we're still seeing be a major issue today. When we're talking about school reopening, the number one thing that schools can do, aside from having everyone vaccinated who's eligible to be vaccinated, is to have universal masking. And you see so many governors just adamantly opposed to masking to the point that they're threatening to withhold funding and salaries for schools that defy them. And that, a lot of was said by the was said by the president and by the last administration. When the administration was debating whether or not to recommend masking for everyone, to be clear, there were mistakes made by the doctors. Dr. Fauci had said early in the pandemic that the general public didn't need to wear masks. The Surgeon General Jerome Adams had also reiterated that message. There was a lot of conflicting messaging on masks from the doctors and experts in the beginning. But then when the administration by the end of March does coalesce around the idea that everyone should be wearing masks, there's still a lot of divisiveness about how to do it and how to recommend it. The CDC had kind of stumbled in how to roll out this announcement and there was some frustration that the CDC took as long as it did to come around to it um, and that there had been conflicting messaging from the other doctors that wasn't ever sort of clarified But when there were debates over masking, there was one health official who had put forward a plan to send a mask to every American household, send a pack of masks, so that every American would have a mask. It would come from the federal government. And this is something people would just do. It wouldn't be about political parties or Republican or Democrat. It was coming from the government. It's a simple step everyone can take to protect themselves, their loved ones, and their communities. And instead, when the president made this announcement, he said that they were recommending everyone wear a mask, but really it's voluntary, and he wasn't going to wear one because he just didn't think it would look right for him to be wearing a mask in the Oval Office. And then he saw his opposition to masks get stronger over the course of the year, even when his his own advisors were telling him 80 percent of Republicans were fine with a mask mandate, especially if it meant reopening the economy. Him and his acting chief of staff still opposed it, and the president would actively ask people to not wear masks in his presence. So that. I think, really laid the groundwork for what you're seeing with some of the governors now, because this is a party that's still so beholden to President Trump.
0: And further to that, there was just a lot of shaming that went on that still carries on. You can hear just, just in the public in terms of people who wear masks, who don't wear masks. Uh, so there's, yes, that did early on set a, a really, well, tragic tone to this whole situation.
1: It did. Um, and it's not to say that there wouldn't be still divisiveness over masks or that some people would have been opposed to it, even if the president had really embraced the recommendation with open arms. But it did become this cultural and political wedge because of the way it was messaged, because it also became a way to attack the credibility of the doctors. When the White House and when the president really became impatient with Dr. Fauci, through the course of the year, because they felt he was constantly undermining their message or not sticking to the message that they wanted, they kept pointing to the fact that he had, quote-unquote, flip flopped on masks, um, and, and it was used as a constant line of attack against him, and still is. Uh, they would say, and, and when the White House later in the year released a sort of campaign opposition file against Dr. Fauci, which is so unusual to do against a member of your own administration, they pointed to the fact that he had first said people didn't need to wear masks and now was recommending them. Um, and while there there is some criticism of the way that that was messaged early on, the science is also bound to change through the course of a pandemic. And, um, you know, there was some concern, including some other experts, that the federal health officials didn't offer a sort of mea culpa for perhaps providing some confusing messaging on masks. But even so, the message on masks remained pretty consistent from early April on, and it was still used over and over as a line of attack.
0: Yes. And and the thing that you said about when, you know, things change and uh, we, we don't seem to be willing to see that this is, even though there have been pandemics in the past, not, or epi, epidemics, really, nothing to this degree, and to try to grapple with it if it had been done earlier uh, and, and giving some grace to the ver- various leadership and be nimble, then perhaps we would find ourselves in a better situation where you know we haven't, we're now at the point of over 650 million people have died of COVID.
1: Right. And I think that that was another really important thing that got lost last year, in, in large part because the, the then presidents didn't really want to have to listen to the scientists after a certain point, is that the science does change throughout the course of an evolving crisis and a a virus like this where it's new Um, people have only known about it at the time for a couple of months and what they don't know far surpasses what they know so the understanding is going to change the recommendations are going to change and that wasn't really messaged very well anytime the recommendations did change and you still see it now we were told in may that vaccinated people didn't have to wear masks indoors or outdoors then at the end of july with the spread of delta The recommendation was that vaccinated people really did need to wear masks indoors again because they could contract and spread the virus to a degree. So, I mean, the science changes, the virus itself changes, it mutates, and we have to adapt and learn to that. But there was very little patience for that last year. And I think you are seeing this year there's still little patience for changing recommendations.
0: Oh, yes, I think we don't have to look too far to see that lack of patience. There's... uh it, certainly a, a lot of anger, uh, along with anxiety and th- these outbursts, I th- think we see the violence in our society, um, and maybe not, you can't have a direct line, but I think we can see how just the, the whole emotional uh, condition of, of all of us collectively leads to um, almost kind of like that boiling point.
1: Absolutely. And I think you can even see it in the conversation we're having right now about vaccine mandates and the people who are not getting vaccinated. I think when you look at President Biden's speech where he um, called for more of these mandates, not only for federal workers, but for businesses with more than 100 employees, his tone to the unvaccinated was, was less understanding and more, what are you waiting for? You're costing all of us right now. What other information do you still need? Um, it's it's much more sort of um, it's, it's a stronger tone and it's and it's making clear to the unvaccinated as opposed to trying to incentivize them with money or sports tickets or different types of incentives, um, telling them you're this is not a, about personal choice or freedom. The same argument that's used against masks a lot of the time, because this is costing all of us. And I think that's a point that's been so lost in this pandemic uh, for, for so many people that these choices don't just affect the one individual, they affect the spread of the virus and the point the country is at at various points in the response
0: yes, and and I think you address this. There was a a really strong sentence I found toward the end of the book where you say Trump and many of his aides prioritized individual liberties over collective action that could have stemmed the spread of the disease and 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 we hear that, oh well, it's my right, or I'm free to do what I want that kind of a mentality exists without thinking about the collective good and and responsibilities that go with freedom and rights.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's important to emphasize that it's not it, it's not just a personal choice because those choices affect what happens to everyone else. We can see it with the spread of the delta variant right now. There was 30% of adults who decided to not get the vaccine. And that really allowed for Delta to spread to the degree we've seen now. We were down to about 12,000 cases in early July. Now we're at more than 160,000 a day again, where we were at some of the worst parts of the pandemic. Um, And it's just that it shows that these choices affect everyone. You see the same thing in schools that don't implement mask mandates. They're the ones having massive outbreaks among children. In Florida, in just the first couple of weeks, more than 10,000 kids were, were sent home because of COVID exposure or testing positive for COVID. So these are it's really not just about personal choice and liberty because the, the decisions impact everyone. One analogy I've heard from experts before is the same reason that smoking is banned indoors in the vast majority of places because the smoke ex- exposed to other people does affect them and puts their health at risk. It's the same thing with many of the decisions we make about how we protect ourselves and others with regards to the virus.
0: Yes, that's such a key point, just to think of these other rules that are there to protect us, although I think on the freeways, sometimes I wonder if if people aren't carrying it to that degree too, when I see people just, you know, excessively breaking the speed limit. Uh, You know, just those sorts of things, uh, thinking about more civility and compassion, uh, I, I think that's what what we can really extract from reading what went on, well, living through this time. But in Nightmare Scenario, you and your co-author, uh, Damien Paletta really give us some very clear insights into to what had gone on. And, and during this challenging time, you interviewed, what was it, over 100 people, correct?
1: We interviewed more than 180 people oh. for this book. And, I think the, the most striking takeaway we took from all those interviews, which we write in our author's note, is that not a single person, nearly 200 people, not a single person defended the collective response. There were people who might have defended their own actions or the actions of an ally, but no one... Pointed to this as a model for the future. No one pointed to this as an example of how a health crisis should be handled. There was no one who wanted to defend how this response had gone.
0: And the thing is, we had a little experience, a small experience of this, although for anyone who died, it was not. When Ebola was such an issue, what was that, like, what, 10 years or so ago? That we had that? 2014. Oh, yeah. Okay. So when that happened, it was able to be contained. uh, I think without regard, it could have been so much worse if all those things hadn't been in place. And so there had been, what, a small model that could have been followed.
1: Well, I think Ebola was a very different disease. And, And this was actually one of the particular challenges of COVID. Ebola would really never spread out of control in a developed country because the symptoms are so easily identifiable that you can very quickly isolate someone with symptoms and make sure that they don't spread it to others. So there were a handful of cases in the U S but it really never, people were, there was a lot of fear over Ebola, but the fear was actually quite outsized to what the threat was in a country like the United States. The The challenge with COVID was that The symptoms are so similar to symptoms for lots of viruses we deal with all the time, to colds, to flu. So people could have mild symptoms, and it was not easy to identify what was COVID versus another sort of more mild illness. And most vexing is that this virus can spread asymptomatically. People can spread it before they begin showing any symptoms. Or they can be infected and not have any symptoms at all the entire time, but unknowingly be spreading it to to many, many people. And the respiratory virus is just incredibly difficult to stop because it spreads through the air and it spreads through such basic things like talking and breathing and just being in the same space as people. With Ebola, you have to really make physical contact for it to spread to someone else.
0: I so appreciate your knowledge, your insight, and just your grasp of all of this because it's so easy to uh, for someone like me to kind of have this more generalized approach. So that uh, by comparing the two and really describing how COVID spreads, I, I hope that too will maybe uh, make an impact on on persons that. Uh, to realize that, you know, this is just is uh, so hard to grasp, which is all the more reason to get the vaccine, wear the mask, and just do all the protective measures uh, until such time as we really see that there is a greater uh, control over it.
1: I think it's so, I, I'm so glad you said that, because I think it's so important to emphasize that this is such a difficult virus to control and the Trump administration obviously made a number of mistakes. This was not handled well, and I think there's widespread agreement of that. Obviously, Operation Warp Speed and the government assistance and role in developing the vaccine in record time was a bright spot. But outside of that, this response, by the time the president left office, there were 400,000 deaths. It was it was a disaster. Um, but it's important to note how difficult this virus is to contain and to respond to. And you see the Biden administration struggling with it right now, despite all the measures that they've tried to take and the, the push they've made to get people vaccinated and to make it easy for people to get vaccinated. They're still facing so much resistance and so many challenges in just understanding the changing nature of the virus. This was going to be difficult no matter who was president at the time. But I think there was an administration official um, who was who was central in the response, who really summed it up. And that person said, This would have been difficult no matter who was in charge. With Donald Trump, it was impossible.
0: Well, you, Yasmin Abu Talib, have done just such a a grand job along with your co author. You really feel like this voice of reason. And we owe it to ourselves to go to our favorite book source, our local bookstore, and pick up our own copy of Nightmare Scenario. I am so grateful for the fact that you've written this book, Yasmine, and uh, certainly that you've taken time to go more in depth with it with us this morning. So many, many thanks.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I hope, I hope it's helpful for people to just to understand where we are.
0: Absolutely.